0: with Dr. Farid Halaqi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dholakou, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Suit so number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Before I get to uh, the summary of the book from last week, this week's book of the week I'm very excited about. It's called Gender and Our Brains by Gina Rapone. Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female minds so um, based on that title and subtitle and it seems to be a book that's going to look at the science of neuroscience and how there's a lot of talk about the male brain female brain and how maybe they aren't so different from each other but very much looking forward to that i think it was released last year so um, most of the research is updated uh, looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you next week Tonight's book that I'll talk about is How to Be Yourself by Ellen Hendrickson, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Uh, The title, uh, a great title, How to Be Yourself, who doesn't want to do that more or be better with that. Uh, And it was a great book and not just for Someone, if you think you are dealing with social anxiety or a diagnosable social anxiety, as she sometimes calls it in the book, a capital S social anxiety, meaning um, to the degree that it would be diagnosable, we all have some social anxiety in a way that could be a starting point, that there is a disorder called social anxiety disorder, but we shouldn't think of social anxiety just as a bad thing. We all have it and we can understand why we are social beings and the way we are judged, treated, and looked at by our fellow human beings is very important. I know it's easy to say, oh, you shouldn't care what anyone thinks and we shouldn't care about others' opinions So, or who cares if people laugh at you or who cares if people think you're this or that. Um, And of course, there is truth to that in the extent that we exaggerate the importance or it can feel exaggerated but we can also understand why this is important especially looking back to our ancestors where they lived in even smaller groups where everyone's opinions about you did matter or mattered even more now we have different ways where opinions matter where you can actually be exposed to millions of people through the internet and different types of media um, and that can also change things and throw more wrenches in what we're dealing with but we do care about what people think and we should if you don't care what anyone thinks about you or at all uh you'd be considered psychopath you don't care about what anyone thinks or feels or what they're going through uh so that's not actually a good thing and um susan kane wrote the book quiet which was uh, an exceptional book that was very good at celebrating introverts and showing that as much as we've thought, or there's a bias towards extroversion, that it's good to be someone who wants to talk to everyone and gregarious and outgoing. Um, she did a great job of bringing about this mindset that actually it could be okay. And actually very good to be, um, an introvert. And so the book takes, I think, um, some of that theme, throughout that actually social anxiety, or if you deal with social anxiety, it's not all a bad thing. It probably means you are more conscientious and more empathic to others and some other things as well, but there's a flip side to that coin. And um, the book does a great job of talking about what social anxiety is and looks like. Um, and again, it's not just for people who are dealing with it to a stronger degree. I actually relate it to a lot of parts of the book that talked about different things um, where you can have being socially anxious in a moment or in certain moments and you might find some things are more socially anxiety provoking than others. You might be fine at a party but you hate to have to call customer service. You might be fine in a meeting but you might have a hard time um, if you're at a restaurant asking for something extra and feeling like you're going to be a burden or be annoying. So people tend to have different experiences of social anxiety just like even if you're not diagnosed with an anxiety disorder everyone deals with anxiety and it might spike in different ways and so that's why I thought the book was so um, important for people to read because you probably know someone who deals with a lot of social anxiety and maybe that's even you but even if you don't you deal with it in some ways and um, you can get some lessons from the book. Now there was one quote and i wanted to make sure i read it because to me it was interesting how much of an impact it had on me when i read the quote i was getting some tears in my eyes because of the kind of the implications of it. but let me read you this is uh it says it's from a letter written by thomas Carlyle to ralph waldo emerson in 1843 so here's the quote a stammering man is never a worthless one physiology can tell you why It is an excess of sensibility to the presence of his fellow creature that makes him stammer. And it just affected me to think that we can sometimes overlook certain people or undermine what someone is saying for various reasons. So saying a stammering man or someone who has a stutter, let's say, um, who has a hard time getting their words out. But it's not because they are worthless. They are actually... Because of their stammer, it's evidence of how much they care about others, how sensitive they are to other people. And so I thought it was a very nice way of showing that sometimes when we look at someone and what might be considered their weakness or something not good about them could be coming from a place that is actually good. And so social anxiety can be similar to that. It's not that they don't care about people or they don't want to engage is actually in a way they can care too much, and that can be a problem. And so um, there's also parts about the brain and how there are people who, if they're dealing with social anxiety, what we find is their emotional part of their brain, the amygdala might fire a little more strongly, but importantly, what for many of us can happen is the frontal lobe or parts of the frontal lobe can help to calm down that feeling. So almost you can think about it or your way out of it. But for people who have social anxiety, their brains respond a little bit slower and not as strong. Uh, and it might just be a few seconds, sometimes just three seconds slower. But in those few seconds, a lot can happen that unfortunately can cascade into creating more and more anxiety. And so this is one of the hard parts about dealing with anxiety is that it does snowball and build upon itself. And I talked about this last week based on starting this book but about how when we have anxiety what it makes us want to do is avoid the thing that makes us anxious and this creates this uh, cycle where we feel relief and that relief is almost addictive because it feels so good that we then have more anxiety and choose avoidance even more and this can be of the ways social anxiety can come about or any type of an anxiety so let's say uh, you go to a party and you're there for a few minutes you have some social anxiety and you find an excuse to live leave you go to your car and you feel a sense of relief ah okay i'm safe now there's really a feeling of safety of relief and that feeling that feels so good unfortunately is gonna work against you because rather than helping you here your detection is off it thinks that by protecting yourself you are going to be better but first of all the threat is not so bad and also you're going to keep yourself from growing if you do this but unfortunately the next time you're at a party or even the thought of a party comes you'll feel even more strongly that urge to avoid it and so the avoidance just further reinforces that feeling of um how good it is to avoid that thing. And it becomes even scarier. You feel like it's harder for you to face it and on and on and on. And as the book discusses, and I mentioned last week, the only way you will get over social anxiety is by facing it. So it's not that you just sit in a room and think about it and think, oh, you know what? I shouldn't care what people think. Or I don't have to be worried about looking stupid. I can go out there and then all of a sudden you're going to be super confident. The way your confidence builds is that you start to take some actions. And by taking those actions, slowly you start to see that what you thought was so scary wasn't as scary as you thought in your mind. Or what you thought was inevitably going to happen, the disaster that was going to happen, doesn't actually happen. Or people aren't as mean or scary or judgmental as you thought they would be in your head. Now, one thing she mentions, she calls it the big reveal. And this can be a big part of anxiety where people, or social anxiety, where people are afraid of being in a way found out. So if people see me enough, or if I have to talk, or if I have to be um, getting close to someone, they're going to see I'm stupid, or I'm boring, or I'm, um, you know, whatever else that thing might be we think we have. We feel that people are going to see it which is more reason why we choose to avoid being in social situations in the first place or avoid certain types of social situations where we feel like this might become clear. So we're afraid of this big reveal. It's going to be known to this person or to this group that I'm whatever it is, fill in the blank, ugly, stupid, boring, whatever else it might be. And because of that, we choose to avoid putting ourselves in those situations, but then again, we pay that price by not being around people. And so because of that, we pay that price of, um, being maybe alone, not advancing in our career, um, other things that might happen. And some people even have an anxiety of people seeing that their anxiety will be seen. You'll notice that I'm blushing, that I'm sweating. And so I feel like I should avoid letting you see that. Also appearance can be a big one. I'm ugly and people will see that if they see me up close, so I should get away from them. So there's different reasons uh, or different categories that the reveal that she calls it can fall under. Um, But whatever it might be, we're trying to make sure people don't see that. And so it's very sad because when you look at what's happening, we think something is wrong with us in our head, Um, but... It really is not, and so we're just afraid that everyone is going to see it. And so, when I work with clients, and you see this in them, I'll sometimes say this, and I've even said it on the air: that there's good news and bad news. Uh, The good news is you're wrong; that you're actually not, not good enough, or whatever this negative thing you see of yourself that you think is so horrible. It's not true, so you're wrong. The bad news is it can be hard to change this. Just me telling you that you're wrong or even seeing some instances of being wrong probably won't be enough. It'll take some time, but it can change. And so part of this book is helping you to see um, that you can change and realize what you're so scared of isn't actually true. So there's this understanding of what social anxiety is, how it gets reinforced, but then as I mentioned, that's not enough. Just thinking about it and talking about it won't be enough. You have to get out there. And that's the hard part because, again, you are trying to avoid the thing you're so afraid of. Um, but what's very exciting, uh, and she calls it the moment, or the moment can be something usually pretty big, is when you realize you're doing something you never thought you can do or something that you thought was so scary isn't that scary at all, and you can handle it talking to strangers, going up and asking someone um, for a date, public speaking, talking in a meeting, calling someone, whatever it might be, you realize I can actually do it. And the old me would have never thought I can do such a thing. She shares a story of this guy, uh, Jim, uh, usually they're not real names, I think she mentions that, um, who has a lot of social anxiety, but he starts to take ballroom dancing classes. And after a few years, he then starts to perform Uh, in a contest or some kind of um, competition, and does quite well, and was so shocked to see that even though he was nervous, what the judge said was very relaxed, was one of the ways that the judge described him. And this is another uh, part of social anxiety, or one of the myths that she talks about, is that we often think that when we are socially anxious, or we're feeling anxiety, everyone could see it on the outside. And the reason why this Happens is when you're feeling it on the inside and it's so strong, it just seems so real and so palpable that you think, of course, everyone can see it. So if someone looks at me, they'll see how nervous I am. But very often that's not the case. And they've done other studies where they videotape people giving a speech or having a conversation and they tell them to pick out a few moments where they're either very confident and or very nervous. And when you look at them side by side, they're very, uh, they're barely distinguishable you can barely tell them apart they look the same so you realize that actually as much as you might think you look so nervous and anyone can tell and it's so obvious usually isn't the case Um, but so she shares some exercises uh, or ways of thinking first there is um, reframing what you are thinking uh, because very often you'll see that what you think to be true is not the case there's also embracing what you're dealing with so rather than beating yourself up over your anxiety, which with many, which many people do. Um, what you actually realize you need to do is to embrace it. And as I was saying before, the only way out is through. You recognize that you can't go away from it and you don't need to, but you can actually recognize what it is. And so she shares an example of two um, swim teachers and one is telling a kid who's not doing a good job about how bad they're doing and they're horrible and they should stop and never swim again. And the other one sees the bad part and is encouraging, doesn't sugarcoat it and say they're not doing it wrong, but in a warm way makes the kid feel better about trying and saying, okay, this part is right. This part is not so right. If you keep doing this, you'll get even better. Um, And the first one is kind of like our inner critic that we can all have. That's so harsh, hard on us. And we can also think of it as an overprotective parent so it's thinking that i want to protect you from getting embarrassed or getting hurt in some way so i'm going to keep you away from whatever you're doing but we know that if we have that second type of coach that is realistic encouraging loving and supportive we're more likely to get better at whatever it is we're doing whether it's swimming or having social interactions and making friends and having relationships. Now, I want to talk more about the book, and I'm at the first commercial break, so I'll continue after the break. That's How to Be Yourself by Ellen Hendrickson, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. We'll be right back. welcome back so i'm continuing the discussion on the book how to be yourself by ellen hendrickson quiet your inner critic and rise above social anxiety as i mentioned at the top of the show highly recommend the book really for anyone but uh because i think a lot of us a lot more of you than you might think deal with social anxiety another um thing that can make us recognize the importance of talking about mental health issues or being open, being more vulnerable is that so many people suffer in so many different ways and they suffer even more because they think they're the only one. And especially this is true with things like social anxiety, where someone might be sitting in a class, uh, she shares a story like this and we make a mistake or we're afraid to ask a question or whatever happens. We think we're the only one going through this, but we don't know what's going on in everyone else's heads. And very often people, um, are not feeling as good as they might look. As I just mentioned before the break, we might look more confident on the outside or it might not be um, very clear to someone looking at us that we're anxious when we actually are. And so another indication of this or a way this plays out is when you're in a classroom lecture and someone is talking and everyone is a little bit confused and you're sitting there thinking, I want to ask a question, but everyone else seems to understand what's going on. So it must just be me. But then you muster up the courage and you ask your question. And then several other people in class say, oh, I'm so happy you asked. I was having the same question or I wasn't understanding what the teacher or professor was saying. And so we see that very often we're dealing with things that other people are as well, but we're all hiding it because we think we shouldn't be. And so it creates this kind of a problem where everyone thinks they're the only one dealing with something, which makes them feel even worse. So if you have social anxiety, you're definitely not the only one. Um, Even if you have the diagnosable social anxiety, there is many people with that, uh, but just having some level of social anxiety is very, very common. Almost everyone will feel it at some point in their life. So you're definitely not alone, or we can say we're actually all in it together uh, the other way around. And so um, throughout the book, it does talk about understanding it better, but this book is a great one, so I recommend it, but the book itself says that reading the book is not enough in the sense that just reading is not enough. You have to go do something about it. You'll only overcome your social anxiety if you take actions. And so the book will help you understand that, get ready and give you some tips and tools, but eventually you'll have to go try it yourself. Um, And so I was talking about how we can be more loving towards ourselves, And I see this so often with everything that people deal with when it comes to mental health standpoint, that we can be so hard on ourselves. We can be hard on ourselves for being depressed, for being anxious, for not having confidence. Whatever it is, people are pretty good at being hard on themselves. And that's why uh, in the the subtitle of the book, it talks about quieting your inner critic because we see how harsh and harmful that is. So someone with social anxiety might say, oh, but why why do I care what people think? Or I was so nervous I didn't go and I'm so weak or I'm so whatever they might say to themselves but in a very negative and judgmental way they'll have the social anxiety which already feels bad but then they'll beat themselves up over having the the social anxiety thinking that helps this tough love mindset um, but not realizing it's only making it worse and making it even harder for themselves to overcome it and so it doesn't mean we coddle ourselves and just say oh you know what you're socially anxious anxious So you don't have to ever do something that makes you uncomfortable and that's where I think people sometimes uh, get in trouble with their thinking about these things and they think that it's either tough love or you let anything go and you never push or challenge someone but genuine self love even or genuine love of someone is that you want the best for them and that will mean challenging them telling them the reality and encouraging them to step out of their comfort zone so that they can grow. Not because you want them to hurt just to hurt, but you know that in order to grow, they're going to have to be uncomfortable. So we can do that same thing to ourselves. You know what? I went to another party and all I wanted to do was leave. And I know that's, a, this is a struggle for me. And imagine, and it's one of the tips that's in the book, what you would say to a friend, you probably wouldn't tell your friend, oh, you're such an idiot. You left again. You're so weak. Why do you care what people think? gosh. I can't believe you're this that or the other hopefully if you're uh, a compassionate friend you'll say yeah i know you've told me you get nervous at parties or this happens and but, you know i'm proud of you that you at least went and let's see what we can do to keep dealing with this issue we're going to keep facing it so you're not just going to coddle them and say we'll never go again i'm not going to push you but you're also not saying you have to go i don't care uh, don't be so weak you have to be somewhere in between where you're actually giving that warmth and love and compassion, but also giving that supportive push forward into the thing that's making them uncomfortable. And the good news is when we do that, it does help make us less afraid of what we're dealing with. So um, in a way, she kind of jokes that there's only three graphs in the book. Um, And so it has one graph where it's talking about when we're in a situation that makes us socially anxious and how we're feeling and so she has the the y-axis says chill in to freaking out so basically saying feeling calm to freaking out and so when you get put in that position you see a huge spike and all of a sudden we're freaking out and if you avoid the situation you'll quickly have that relief I was talking about in the previous segment so you'll go back down to that chilling calm feeling very quickly and so that unfortunately as I said before It works, quote unquote, so well works as making us feel good in the moment that it can be almost addicting and make us want to keep doing that. But then she shows on the next graph that if we brave it out, so if we get into that scary position and we brave it out, it'll take us a lot longer to get calm. And so that might not feel good. But if we recognize it's worth it, we might let ourselves go through that. And then the third graph shows that if we keep doing that, we calm down quicker over time. It still might not be as fast as avoiding, but it becomes less and less deep. So as she puts it, turning mountains to molehills, or kind of turning what seems like something so scary and big into something not as scary. And so that's another lesson about social anxiety or any kind of anxiety that you have. It's not that you're going to, when we say overcome, it means you don't feel it anymore. So if you have social anxiety, it's almost... Impossible to think you're gonna have no social anxiety, but you can have less of it, and it could interfere with your life much less. It can get out of it can get out of your way in the way that it is now. And so, the more you do something, you see, it's not that scary. Um, she shares a story of this guy. I think his name is Jai J A I, and he had social anxiety, or he was afraid of uh, getting rejected. Um, In different ways. And so he actually went on this. I forgot if it was a thousand days in a row where he would go up to people and get rejected by something. So he'd ask them to do really kind of crazy things or out there things like um, he asked a dog groomer if they would cut his hair, Um, things like that. So things where he knew he would get a no. And you start to realize it's not that bad. It's not so scary. And that's what we do with our anxieties, that you think it's so scary, but when you face it, you see it's not that bad. It's your anticipation and your worst case scenario thinking that makes it seem so bad. But it actually isn't that bad, even if what you think is going to happen happens. But more often than not, what is going to happen is that that thing won't even happen. So you think you're going to go and they're going to make you feel really bad, but you actually don't. And that's what he experienced. He said, most people would say no, uh, but were very polite about it or kind about it or maybe laughed or ask them why he was asking them, but it wasn't this really scary thing that he had built up in his mind. So we have to get out there and face that anxiety. And one of the ways we do that is she talks about creating a challenge list and This is similar to what we do with phobias, where you do systematic desensitization, but you build a challenge list, starting with smaller things. So maybe the first one would be going up to a stranger and saying hello. And then by the end, you have to think of the personal things for you that are difficult and keep pushing yourself out of that comfort zone, having more exposure to the anxiety to see that it's not that scary. And again, it's not that once you do this, now your anxiety is gone forever, which is what some of these people are looking for, but that you'll realize I can face this, I can handle it and even learn ways to cope with it afterwards, which is also one of the techniques she talks about. Okay, well, what will I do if I go and uh, give this speech and it doesn't go well, or I feel like I made a fool of myself? Who could I call? What can I do to help myself feel better? So you think about that and realize you'll be okay. And so it's a very empowering feeling to realize that the thing I thought was so scary, it might still have some fear or I might have some anxiety still, but I can face it. I don't have to be so scared. Unfortunately, the more you do it, the easier it becomes, the less scary it becomes. And unfortunately, the less you do it and the more you avoid it, the scarier it will feel. Now, she also shares some myths that people have when it comes to social anxiety and a big one is that people think that they have social anxiety because they lack social skills they think i just don't know how to have conversations or small talk or build friendships uh, and so because of that um, that's why i do so poorly in social situations or I do so bad socially now of course some people will have some social skills deficits or not know some things Uh, that will lead to them having bad social outcomes. But for people who really are dealing with social anxiety, it's not a deficit of social skills. And one way this becomes very clear is that if you put this person around people they're comfortable with, let's say longtime friends or family they feel really comfortable around, you'll see them... Doing a great job socially or being talkative or however it is, they'll be okay. But it's the anxiety that's getting in the way, just like any other kind of performance anxiety. If you have test anxiety, you know the information. And then when you go to take the test, because of the anxiety, you might draw a blank and all of a sudden you can't come up with the information that you actually know. So it's not an information or knowledge deficit, it's the anxiety getting in the way. Similarly with social anxiety it's not that you don't know how to have conversations or to talk or any of those things it's that your your anxiety is getting in the way of you expressing that so many people think that's their problem when really it's actually the anxiety that's getting in the way not an actual social skills deficit Uh, another one relates to alcohol and there was a chapter a fairly short one but a chapter on alcohol um, sometimes called liquid courage but a lot of people use alcohol to deal with their social anxiety. And again, this is one of those things I talk a lot about things that work, quote unquote. For some people, they feel it works because in the short term it gives them something, but really they're not facing it. And when you look at it, they're not getting what they actually want. So she talks about some people, um, she calls them the pre gamer. They'll drink before they go to a social event so that they don't feel like they have as much anxiety and they can handle it more. Some people, do more of the drinking afterwards or the after drinkers. They go to the event, they try to get through it, and then they feel so bad they come home to kind of drink to forget or to deal with those feelings they're dealing with. Then she describes the supersized social drinker, those people that don't drink that often, but when they do and they're out in a social situation, they'll overdo it, and so um, they'll drink too much. And so there's different ways, or there's ones that don't drink at all because they're afraid Of getting out of control. Um, So alcohol, as she talks about, has an interesting relationship with social anxiety, but definitely we shouldn't think of that uh, as a cure or something that's going to work for us because in a way it's also reinforcing that I need this thing to deal with the anxiety if you're using it before or after or whatever it might be. And of course, it's not going to help you actually overcome it or be able to face things better. And it can lead to eventually developing a drinking problem. And so very often that can be the case that people with social anxiety turn to alcohol. And unfortunately, then the alcohol itself becomes a bigger problem. And so she talked about alcohol, but for some people, maybe it's marijuana or other drugs. Um, But as might seem obvious, but can be worth noting, it's not going to be the solution. Now, this book, uh, as I mentioned, does a great job of talking about uh, social anxiety and also helps you come up with tips and tools to overcome it. But then at the end of the book, she talks about, well, you know, it kind of could be a way of looking at, well, why is this all so important? And really the reason is that um, she talks about the very famous and well-known um, grant study, where it's also called the Study of Adult Development, that started in, I think, 1938 and followed people in the Boston area over time and was trying to figure out what makes these people happier, what leads to good life outcomes. And so they had a, it was diverse for back then and how they would do research was all white, all male group, but coming from, um, a range of socioeconomic, uh, outcomes or uh, starting points. And so what they found was that the most important thing for leading a happy and healthy life was the quality of the relationships that people had the warmth they felt. So this is not about quantity. Uh, You might say you have 2,000 friends on Facebook, but we're talking about the quality of friendships that you have and what you feel with them was by far the most important and the best predictor of happiness and health. So we need healthy relationships. We need warm, good relationships. And unfortunately, social anxiety can be something that gets in the way of a lot of people creating those types of relationships, which is why a book like this can be so important for us to realize we need people, we need to be around people, we need to create relationships in order to be healthy and happy. And very often it's not that we can't create them because it's not a social skills deficit and it's not that people don't want to be our friends and don't want to be close to us. That's something that our inner critic is telling us, which is wrong, but unfortunately hard to change. But if we deal with that social anxiety, we might be able to overcome it and then create those healthy and happy relationships that we need so i thought that was really great and and overall would highly recommend the book to anyone especially if you feel like you're dealing with even some social anxiety but just you'll get a better understanding of how it works uh, and how you can work with it so that was uh, how to be yourself quiet your inner critic and rise above social anxiety by ellen hendrickson all right let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back welcome back i was talking about the book how to be yourself by ellen hendrickson talking about social anxiety and this is a topic that i bring up a lot but in reading it 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 was even more uh, on my mind i wanted to mention it again and it comes back to uh parenting your kids and so when we talk about parenting it's obviously the hardest job and the most important job you'll have I don't mean job is in like going to work, but the role that you have. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. And so in this book, as I was mentioning, it was talking about anxiety and how the only way to overcome it is to face it. And what we realize about anxiety is that it's in a way our brain tricking us into thinking something is scarier than it actually is, or that we should be more worried about it than we need to be. And Um, The inner critic that we have, as much as it sounds like a really bad thing, we can recognize that deep down it's just trying to protect us. So it's afraid of us getting hurt, of us being in a situation where we have a bad outcome. And so it's trying to protect us. And it says, just avoid those things that are a little scary or could have a bad outcome. And unfortunately, might do this in a negative way by saying, You're not good enough or people will see how bad you are various other things but in a way it has a a similar uh, dynamic to that overprotective parent that says oh my kid might get hurt this way they might get sad about this they might feel uncomfortable like this so let me protect them at any and all costs and not only that that's my job as a parent is to make sure my kid never feels hurt never feels sad can't get hurt doesn't have a bad day or a bad feeling and this is completely getting in the way of your child's growth and we can make that connection with how we're dealing with anxiety because essentially what you're doing is you're creating anxiety in your child by doing this when you constantly interfere with anything that might make them uncomfortable you're actually showing them the world is a scary place you're also telling them you're not very strong to handle these things And you have to avoid these things because you won't know what to do, or you can't take it and you won't handle what's there. And then they'll really take that to heart and think, okay, I can't handle anything. And so rather than making them feel better and uh, stronger, they'll feel weaker and weaker and more afraid of the world. And I see this a lot with uh, families. Of course, a lot of the families I get to work with are Iranian families, where they think that. The most important thing is to keep their kids feeling good in every moment and to prevent any type of pain. I call this the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, and it is a very dangerous one. And so parents think it's from a loving place. I don't want my kid to feel bad. Feeling bad is not good, and I should do anything to make them feel good and avoid feeling bad. In a way, it can seem to have some logic to it until we realize how much we're interfering with growth when we do that. Because growing also has growing pains and your job as a parent isn't just to prevent pain, but it's to promote growth, healthy and happy growth and development is your role as a parent. So we have to remember that, that your job isn't to prevent anything that makes your child unhappy, because if you do that, you're also going to prevent many, many and almost all opportunities for actual growth to take place for them to realize how strong they are and how resilient they are. Uh, and as i mentioned before this comes back to the parents realizing what they themselves um, feel when it comes to negative feelings most people can't tolerate their own negative feelings it feels so bad that they've learned probably from of course their own parents and this gets passed on in generations that those feelings are bad and should be avoided at all costs you don't want to feel sad and so we try to avoid them we try to deny them We try to pretend they're not there. We might try to use drugs and alcohol and other means to get away from those feelings. But we just think that's what life is about, is getting away from those ones that don't feel good and only having the ones that that do feel good, which is not what real life becomes. It's not what real life is. And so we have to first increase our own tolerance, distress tolerance or frustration tolerance, essentially our tolerance for the negative feelings. It's okay to be sad it's okay to not feel good. Life is part of, or this is part of life, that sometimes you won't feel good. If it's an avoidable pain, I'll try to avoid it. And if it's something that doesn't lead to my growth, I will try to avoid it, but I have to recognize there is some pain. Um, And this is where I think there is so much wisdom in that serenity prayer, where uh, I won't be saying it verbatim, but uh, you want to um, change the things we can and accept the things we can't. But then also that last part's very important and have the wisdom to know the difference between the two because that is so important because when i say tolerate bad feelings i don't mean that if anything is bad bad is happening to you you have to just accept it forever sometimes we can do something about it sometimes there's a rock in your shoe you can take that rock out you don't have to just hurt and say well i have to just accept pain and pain is part of life but sometimes you might have an issue with your foot and you see lots of doctors and they say you're going to have a little bit of pain and you might learn to just have to accept it and so in life that is a big part, that wisdom of knowing which things we can change and we, which things we can't. It's not always so clear, but we have to try to see uh, and use our wisdom the best we can to determine which one it is. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, we have to accept there are some things that we can't change that will be sad and hurtful. And that is a part of life. That is part of a meaningful life. If you um, care about people then you'll care if something happens to them or if something happens to your relationship with them. That's just part of life. So if you want to have meaningful relationships, you're always risking that you can get hurt. If you want to do a physical activity, you have to risk that you can also get hurt in that physical activity. If you want to never get hurt, then you never do anything. And so this is unfortunately the message that some parents uh, deliver to their kids or the way they treat their kids is that my job is to make sure they never get hurt. And the only way to do that is to do nothing. And so we do nothing. And also when you do nothing, you can't grow because you don't experience anything. You don't get to actually um, develop and strengthen your physical and emotional and mental muscle. And you just stay very stagnant, which is very sad. So as a parent, we have to recognize that I have to accept that my child will sometimes feel bad. Just like we know they get sick of course you have a little baby you don't want your baby to get sick but especially young babies get sick very often they get lots of colds and so unfortunately you have to deal with that do you want your kid to be sick of course not you want your baby to be healthy to not feel uncomfortable and not feel the pain they have when they are sick but you know you have to accept it and help them deal with it to slowly get over it and get through it And you have hope that they will be better. They will bounce back. And the same is true of the emotional things we go through. Of course, you don't want to see your child dealing with a disappointment, a heartache, feeling rejected, feeling um, less than in some way. Whatever that feeling might be, that doesn't feel very good. But you want to help them bounce back. We can't just erase it or take it away. We have to accept that it's there. And so um, following up on this theme of social anxiety... What you'll see parents do is the kid might come home crying. Oh, all these kids made fun of me or all these kids, they wouldn't play with me and they said I'm not their friend anymore. And we tell them, so you shouldn't care. What doesn't matter? Go make new friends tomorrow or you'll forget about this when you get older. or Something to just tell them that pain isn't real or doesn't exist because we think our only job is to take away pain. So if I can try to convince my kid that the pain isn't there, maybe that'll work rather than recognizing The reality, which is even us as adults wouldn't feel good if our friends made fun of us or if our friends didn't invite us somewhere or said they don't want to be friends with us anymore. How can we expect even more from a child um, and realize that's hurtful? I'm sorry that you went through that pain. And so you empathize with them. You show them you care. But also because you remain calm, you're showing them that you know and believe that they can overcome this so that this isn't going to be something that literally or emotionally kills them, it will be sad, it will be hard, and you'll be there with them through this hard time, but they'll bounce back. Just like if they get a cold, you know it's uncomfortable and painful, and you're sorry that they're going through that pain, uh, and you're going to help them in getting better, but you also know they will be better, and so you have that same hope. So we want to have a similar reaction to their emotional pains. But then coming back to this theme of exposing ourselves to things that are a little uncomfortable or that don't feel very good and how that contributes to our growth and how, if we do the opposite, it's not that just, we prevent our growth. We almost make us make it harder to grow in the future. Because what happens is if I'm afraid to face anything, if I'm afraid to get hurt, if I'm afraid I can't handle getting hurt, I can't handle what's out there. I'm petrified to try anything, to trust myself, to trust the world, to trust that I could make good decisions that's another area that parents intervene far too much oh my kid won't know uh, what the thing's what thing's best for them i know so let me choose for them first of all sometimes we don't know what's best for them even when they're really little children we want to know what their preference is and show that we value that uh, but even if you're right you're taking away an opportunity for them to make a decision to trust themselves to trust what they think to listen to that voice within themselves that says what they want And then to deal with the consequences, whatever they may be. And you have to know that they're going to handle it. Okay, they choose to go uh, to the wrong class and then they have a bad time in the class. Okay, they'll realize it. Or they choose to, to not do their homework and then the next day they face some consequences. Let them face it. Let them have those small bumps and bruises emotionally, just like we do physically, and see that they're going to be okay. So they realize, okay, it's not that bad. Bad things happen, things don't always go your way. I can see how my decisions led to this. I can trust myself. I can continue making decisions and I'll be all right. But when you tell them, "Oh, you don't know what to do. I have to do it for you." As they get older, the decisions get just get more important and they, their doubt will also get bigger. They'll be like, "I have no idea what to study." I have no idea who to pick to date or to marry. I have no idea how to live my life. My parents always made those decisions for me. And also by making those decisions for me, they gave me a direct and indirect message that you don't know what to do. You can't handle these things. So if we only focus on avoiding pain, we have to recognize that you're always also going to be avoiding growth. If you avoid all things that feel bad, you'll also avoid all things that will help you grow as well. So of course we help them avoid the avoidable pains and the ones that just lead to damage. If your child is going to do something really physically harmful, of course you don't let them. Or if they're in an emotional situation, let's say a teacher is actually abusing them, let's say emotionally, you don't say, well, they have to just go through it. There, of course, are situations where you do need to remove them, where we do avoid things that are detrimental and very harmful. But we don't avoid things that are just uncomfortable or a little challenging. Those are what we need to actually grow. And it can be tough for a parent to feel like you're letting yourself, you're letting your child get hurt. You're letting your child feel bad, but you have to always take a step back and recognize what is going on. Is this a discomfort that is part of life that actually is gonna help them grow? Or is this where I'm supposed to intervene and stop something? Is this the pain of damage or is this the pain of growth? And if it's the pain of growth, if we really look at it, if you take that away, You're actually doing the least loving thing you can do to your child you're not allowing them to grow and become stronger to take better care of themselves to be less afraid of the world and to be more confident in themselves so we have to recognize that as paradoxical as it might seem sometimes allowing your child to feel a hurt is actually the most loving thing you can do actually allowing them to feel something that doesn't feel good might actually be the best parenting you can do but if you come from the mindset that my only job as a parent is to prevent pain then you won't allow for this to happen but you'll also be interfering and not allowing for a lot of growth to happen as well so uh, as i read this book that theme um, was also very clear to me in thinking of parents and she talks about how in a way that inner critic can be like a, a helicopter parent or that overprotective parent that gets in the way we think we're protecting we think we're helping but we're actually interfering with growth and development and eventually uh, inevitably that's really what parenting is about is to helping your children grow and to become stronger and become that best strong version of themselves not just preventing them from getting hurt all right that's the end of tonight's show thank you to amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there you've been listening to in session with dr farid We have a wonderful night Oh,